0: Welcome to the Lentil Intervention podcast, talking all things movement, whole food nutrition and environmental wellness with your hosts, Ben and Emma. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 17 of the Lentil Intervention. My name is Ben Alderberg, joined by my co-host Emma Strutt uh, on our usual socially distanced podcast. Hello, Emma.
1: G'day, Ben. How are you going?
0: (laughs) Good. I'm uh, wondering when what episode number it'll be when it we'll eventually be in the same in the same country. Um oh, who
1: would know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it might be a while at this rate. But um anyway, we're uh, really excited uh for our next guest and um I think, yeah, let's first make our first little announcement because it ties in really well with our guests. So many of you will remember the, uh, a recent episode with Dr. Mike Joy, the freshwater ecologist, which incidentally is still our most popular guest that we've ever had with uh, the most downloads, the most listens, um, and really uh, touched on a lot of people in terms of the reality of, of the state of affairs, I think, in, in New Zealand. And uh, since then, we've had a we've had a chat with with Mike, and uh, we're really excited to announce that uh, the organisation that he co-founded, the Better Futures Forum, we've now established a collaborative relationship with them. So that now falls part of our call to action. So, you know, our podcast's all about creating awareness about a lot of um, issues and bringing really solid information, but we also want to incite action because it's all very well being aware of what's happening, but what can we do about it? And who better to first link up with than Better Future Forum? So um, like I said, Dr. Mike Joy, um, you know, sort of really gave us a state of affairs with in terms of you know the planet seems like it's in real state of disrepair but they're showing us that there's so much positive change that we can still make and um first cab of the off the rank um Emma who's, yeah, who's, who's first un- cab
1: off the rank? Who's um, our guest we have the wonderful Hannah Bloomhart on the show today She's an independent researcher with a background in law, policy, history and international relations and serves as the Zero Waste Expert for Better Futures Forum. In 2015, she co-founded The Rubbish Trip with her partner Liam and is also the co-coordinator of the New Zealand Product Stewardship Council and the co-founder and policy spokesperson for Takeaway Throwaways. Amongst many other things, actually. I, I honestly wonder how she finds time to sleep. <laughs> so we are incredibly appreciative that she could spare some time for us today. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh kia ora. thank you for having me.
0: Amazing. So um Hannah, you're uh, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier, you've been spending the last few years on the road, literally, and now obviously just like COVID's affected so many of us in so many ways uh you're now back home in wellington
2: yeah yeah that's right we um we've bunkered down back here but there's still lots of zero waste work to be done even if we're not on the road so so still keeping busy
0: (laughs) i'm sure so let's start off a little bit um you know emma just gave us, a wonderful introduction to you and it was really truncated because there's so much to you but tell us a little bit about yourself your background and um and how you got into this whole journey um to where you are now
2: yeah well um as emma mentioned i've sort of got a background in law and policy and sort of academic kind of stuff uh but about Five and a half years ago, my partner, Liam, and I had this slightly wacky idea that we wanted to try living without a rubbish bin. And that kind of came about, you know, not we're, we've always been sort of really conscious about the state of the environment and making efforts to reduce our impact. But to be honest, like we weren't working in the area of environmental action or, or research or science or anything like that. It was just a personal project that we wanted to take on in our own time. And we just, we're quite all or nothing people. So we're like, yep, we can do that. And so we went overnight, um, to living without a rubbish bin at the beginning of 2015. And, and yeah, we, Like I said, it was just supposed to be a personal project, but we just got so into it. And the thing that really got us was that it was far easier than we'd expected to make quite drastic changes. And not only that, but there were all these unexpected positive spinoffs in that we were saving lots of money. Our diet. Changed to be much more local and seasonal, and and I think much healthier. Uh, And we were just learning all these things we'd never known that we could do before, like how to make toothpaste, how to make all this food from scratch. Um, But just becoming much more DIY. And I suppose that we got we got so excited about it that we got slightly obnoxious with our friends and family. I think because we didn't have an outlet, you know. to tell me, you know, just like, you know, it's not even that hard and you should try it too. And I mean, we ruined a few dinner parties. I mean, it was quite bad. And so about 18 months after having just been doing this personal project, we decided that it was time for us to get it out of our system and do a public talk about living waste-free to people who could, you know come consensually to listen to us talk about wish and so we just put this little facebook event up um for this talk that we were going to do in wellington no promotion and on the night we had like 200 people there wow and none of them were there. none of them were our friends and family like they'd all been like we don't need to listen to those two talking about that <laughs> um so it was all strangers <laughs> oh my gosh that's um, fantastic and- yeah, and it was just we were just like, oh, what have we done? But what better place and, than Wellington?
0: Then, I mean, that's probably one of the more engaging places for being a bit more open-minded in terms of sustainable living, I suppose.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of people who talk who talk a good talk, but that's I guess. Well, you know, that's what we kind of had because our experience had always been living waste-free in Wellington, and so we'd sort of gotten used to sort of doing it in Wellington but it wasn't until we decided to do the rubbish trip traveling around New Zealand full-time doing these talks about waste-free living which we started a year after that first talk in Wellington and we were traveling around New Zealand and our modality was really we would arrive in a place a few days before our talk and we would just do a thorough stock take of the town so that when we did our talk we could we could say, if we lived in this town, this is how we would live zero waste, so we could really guide people. And what we learned through that was actually that Wellington was one of the more difficult cities in New Zealand at that time True. to live waste-free. Yeah, but we've been so oblivious to it. So yeah, now every time we come back to Wellington, you know, like, I guess like any city, there's a lot of focus, I suppose, on sustainable consumption, but not a lot of focus, I think, on living with less and mm-hmm. um, making do with what you have, and really, yeah. that that is the that is the underlying philosophy of zero waste living. It's not about kissing out your life with all these trendy zero waste things. It's actually about making do, and it's a it's a non consumerist philosophy at its core. Yeah. So so yeah, I think Wellington has a re- um, receptive progressive audience, but often the people who are most keen to take up some of these resourceful resilience ideas tend to be living rurally and they may have you know politically conservative views in some ways but but um can can be quite keen to really go all out with the resourcefulness so yeah we've learned a lot of things i guess from the trip
0: so out of interest which um which towns or cities would you say are the most uh uh sort of or the easiest to to live a a sort of a waste you know more of a waste free type of life
2: yeah I mean I guess it depends a little bit on what you're after but like fundamentally most people's household waste is going to be associated with their food and grocery shop right. and so when we think about reducing our uh, footprint and, and how a town may be easier or more difficult to live waste free we're looking at what are the options to get food and essential items without packaging mm. and also um, we we don't drive, we cycle or we walk. So what's easily accessible within a small space, a small area. And so Nelson, hands down, easiest place huh. to live waste-free in New Zealand. It's small. There's like an abundance of places where you can get unpackaged food. So much locally produced food. The markets are amazing. Um, so, yeah, Nelson's pretty good and Palmerston North, is
1: really good as well great now when you say that you were living waste free with Liam you really were walking your talk there I was watching a piece where you were interviewed on TV and you consumed about seven like you produced about seven kilograms of waste in the same time period that an average New Zealand couple would produce about one to one and a half tons so massive massive mm. difference which is it really shows that individual changes can have a really big impact.
2: Yeah, it's such an interesting one too because, like, from a policy perspective, you know, from my background in policy, like, I'm also really interested in getting change from the top. And a lot of the, you know, we do get criticism sometimes from people that say, oh, well, it's all well and good, you're going to all this effort to change your lifestyle, but actually the real change needs to come with targeting those producers and blah, 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 blah. And I mean, my response to that is really that we're in such a mess ecologically and we're kind of all complicit in a way and we actually don't have time (laughs) to pass the buck. Like Mm. we all need to make change on all levels of society at the same time. And everybody does have different roles and different responsibilities. And um, I also believe that if you only have a finite amount of time to dedicate to you know reducing the impact of human society on the planet actually it you can have a much bigger impact on by changing your lifestyle for the amount of energy you put in then the amount of energy it takes to get even the smallest change at a policy level. I mean, look at, like, both Australia and New Zealand, the years it's taken to get plastic bags to be banned, Mm. you know, and the energy and the exhaustion, and, and in the end, what has that really achieved, whereas with about six weeks of concerted effort, you can cut your household waste by, like, 90%. (laughs) <laughs> wow. Um and you can still do the policy change stuff, right? Like yeah, exactly. because you've then built up all of this expertise about what needs to change on a societal level to make it easier for other people to live like that because it is, you know, it's not it's not the norm to live like this and so it would be more convenient if the the world was set up to help people reduce waste rather than it being the other way around so yeah i think i just think individuals can make a massive difference and lifestyle change is political it's totally political
0: yeah so tell us a little bit more about the rubbish trip itself um because you know having a little cruise through your website which by the way we'll put a link in our show notes um is amazing there's amazing resources on there there's um, you know, there's, uh, I guess not incentive, but inspiration. To, to go this way. Tell us a little bit more about the whole concept of that.
2: Yeah, well, I think it sort of all goes back to that first talk we did, and we had all mm. these people come, and, and then we sort of went back to our little old lives, and we were just getting flooded with requests to come, Or oh, can you come and speak to my school? Can you come and speak in my workplace? And like, you know, we'd go after work in the evenings or on the weekends, or I'd run during my lunch break to get to another workplace to do a talk. And, and we, we just started to think, wow, if this is the level of interest in Wellington, surely it'll be like this all around the country and so after about a year of just sort of fitting it into our spare time we decided to to just quit our jobs and travel on the road full-time doing these talks all across New Zealand and the idea was to do six months in the North Island and six months in the South Island but in the end we did it for three years Um, and we did it on a budget of $20 a day Uh, wow that's unbelievable
0: How how did you get – and and that's travel as well, so?
2: So that covered our transport and our food, and then the rest of it was we just used the sharing economy, so we couch surfed. I mean, I think most people's expenses are generally tied up with their housing, so housing Mm, costs, electricity, internet, all of that kind of stuff, so by couch surfing full-time – actually you know $20 a day is quite a lot for just food and transport and we were hitchhiking um a lot and and we also had bikes um or we would borrow bikes uh so that we could cycle when we were in a town so yeah it's amazing what you can live off and the support we received from people was just phenomenal it was yeah New Zealanders have really looked after us
0: So it went from a year to, to, well, a planned year to three years. Um, Any sort of highlights in terms of communities or entities that you would have never thought you'd be standing in front of, um, you know, sort of encouraging change?
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, the focus for the rubbish trip was really to to, to bring the presentations to communities first and foremost. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's why we, we always did our talks for free to make sure it was accessible. And so we, and because we were couch surfing, what that meant was we got pretty embedded in a community really quickly. And so we got to we just got to see so many amazing community initiatives we learned so much it 's unbelievable but um awesome things like crop swap systems where people will come together in a predefined place, like once a fortnight and everyone will bring something they've foraged or grown themselves and they'll all share, share for free with no money exchanged. And honestly, like amazing abundant, like, you know, all these community initiatives that show the abundance that are in a community that Mm. often we have this deficit mentality all the time. Mm. Um, and, um, Oh, we have, in New Zealand, we're really lucky to have um, Parakore, which is the Maori-led zero-waste organisation, um, and we were so fortunate that we received a lot of, they have um, Kaiatahi or regional leaders in, um, across New Zealand, and so we were so fortunate to be able to link up with many of the Kaiatahi, and were able to speak in kura Papa Maori and Maori language schools and um, with Um, and marae and and, and also learn from, you know, like a maori approach to waste reduction, which is um, quite different um, to, say, a Pākehā approach in terms of how it's conceptualised. So we learned a lot about that. And we did also speak um, to some big businesses as well, uh, which was interesting, some law firms, um, industry groups. Uh, but I must say that for us our, our heart is always in working with communities to to reduce waste as you know, at that
1: level. So this um probably comes back to you mentioned that people just need to, you know, start consuming less, living their lives a little bit differently. Um and that ties in nicely with the waste hierarchy. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah,
2: so the waste hierarchy is like my favorite thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like um what underpins the zero waste philosophy? And that's what makes it different to say plastic free um mm. philosophy that you know people always say, oh, are you coming to talk to us about how we'll we can reduce plastics. And it's like, oh it's not just that. Um so yeah so the zero waste hierarchy is basically some people know of it as like the five R's or the six Rs or whatever. It's um basically The one that we share is the six R's. It's six words that start with R. And the trick is really that you follow it in the order set out to most effectively reduce waste. So it goes like this. The number one thing we do before anything else is we refuse what we do not need. And then we seek to replace things we do need that might be wasteful with a non-wasteful alternative. Whatever you cannot refuse or replace, we just reduce our consumption of. We reuse whatever we physically possibly can. Then we start to think about recycling and whatever we're left with, uh, we should be able to rot in a home compost and yeah. i guess what's really interesting about the waste hierarchy is that the focus is on waste prevention and reduction and the reuse of resources before things like recycling and this is what sets zero waste apart from many waste minimization strategies that so often uh, just focus on things like recycling
1: Correct, uh, yeah. which
2: is yeah not not where we should be putting our resources and our energy
1: mm. yeah and in new zealand I mean, you consume far more resources than you actually have the capacity to process. Same here in Australia. So I'm not kind of like throwing stones here.
0: (laughs) Um, I was wondering.
1: (laughs) But the whole system is very (laughs) vulnerable to the overseas market, isn't it? And COVID kind of highlighted that with China um, placing restrictions on their recycling imports. Um, which ultimately can lead to recyclable products ending up in landfill or to other countries with poorer recycling regulations. So, again, that just kind of reinforces the fact that refuse should be the number one rather than just relying on recycles. So yeah. um, could you talk to us a little bit about our growing waste problem and, you know, what the answer is?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think actually what's really important about the zero waste hierarchy as well is that uh, it actually, you know, often when we talk about waste problems, we get so focused on the waste and that tends to become conversations about pollution or like what we do with it when we're finished with it, whether it's recycling or whatever. But actually what zero waste and the zero waste hierarchy is really about is trying to get us to be more efficient with our use of resources and energy. And so it's actually a climate policy because uh, when you're preventing and reducing your use of things, you're not extracting raw materials from the earth, which is the most intensive, energy intensive part of the process. And so every rung of the waste hierarchy, you um, go up the more energy efficient the more greenhouse gas emissions savings you get and so when we come back to this con- the question you asked me about our waste problems Again, our waste problems come from the fact that we are over-consuming the planet's resources. And it's not just a question of whether we have the capacity to process them or not. It's that the Earth cannot sustain this level of consumption. Like, we can't recycle Mm. our way out of it. Um, We have to find ways of reducing our use of the Earth's resources. And so that could be through uh, systems like being better at reusing. So really aggressively phasing out single use materials and moving towards reusable systems for things like packaging, but also resource recovery of construction, uh, things so that, you know, all the, all the stuff that when we, you know, cons- construct a building to, to be reuse those resources and including when we take a building down rather than smashing it up, conserve those resources to rebuild, um, Yeah, and thinking about waste source reduction strategies, and the other thing too is how we can shift towards a sharing economy rather than an ownership economy, and that's a key way that high-income societies can reduce their consumption. Because right now we have a ridiculous situation where we all own quite resource-intensive things. Like a really good example is is all everyone having their own vehicle. When you think about how much resource and weight is in a vehicle. It's probably like the heaviest thing that anybody owns by a country mile, like tons of material. And we all have our own car, you know, our own one, mm-hmm. this car. We're all driving around and we only use it like, you know, there's lots of times when it's just sitting there doing nothing. It's an extraordinary uh over-consuming mentality and we could shift away from that through a sharing economy where you have far less vehicles in an economy uh, but they're being used more and shared amongst large groups of people and you can apply that principle to everything to tools to clothes even to electronic waste i mean electronic materials it's just like eye watering uh, the amount of waste we go through and so these are our biggest challenges in terms of waste is actually, how do we change the way that we consume goods and services in our modern societies? That That's the challenge. It's not about building more recycling plants. That's the challenge.
0: Yeah. And I think it's important to note, I mean, there's there's a few things that you've raised that, that you know, firstly, you know, people always think about, well, it's recyclable, it's okay, but it still takes a considerable amount of energy to recycle something and nothing is ever pure. So you're still introducing, you know, new virgin materials into the recyclable material and it's still a process in itself. So the recycling, like you say, it's, it shouldn't be at the top. It should be at the end as the last resort. Um, but, you know, if we use examples in terms of bigger picture, you know, you say vehicles, um, you know, a lot of people focus on, on, on a very small step and say, well, I'll go electric vehicle. Because that's better for the planet, and yet I, I and I, I need to find this as as, as my reference because I remember reading this a while ago. Is that electric vehicles are not necessarily yes, you're not consuming fossil fuels to run the vehicle, but what what it went through to become an electric vehicle mm. can actually be more consuming than a standard. Diesel or petrol vehicle in terms of the, the materials used. So perhaps certain, um, metals that are, are more, um, you know, sort of more exclusive or, or the way they mined or whatever the case is, because now you've got bigger batteries. So, you know, it's, it's in consumerism. You know, you talk about electronic waste. Any big product now, I've got into the habit of every single year, there's a new model. There's a better model. There's, there's something greater. So we're no longer holding on to our mobile phones you know, for five years, 10 years at a time. It's now every year you've got to have the better one or you're not holding on to the same, I don't know, I'm looking around my own desk, a watch or a GoPro or whatever the case is, there's always the better model. So people kind of forget the bigger picture.
2: Yeah, I mean, and I think often waste conversations are so centered around packaging and um, I think that packaging is a humongous problem and we it's definitely worthy of our attention, but we also have to remember that it's the stuff it's all the stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and yeah, as you say, you can't green consumption. Like it's almost an oxymoron really. Um, you know, the biggest things that anybody can do to reduce their waste footprint, apart from composting their food waste, because that's probably the biggest thing in terms of volume um, for most households. But apart from that is to buy secondhand and not buy new stuff. Mm. Um, that's pretty, you know, that's pre- and then. Everything else from there is, is is great too, but those are the two big ones. And they're kind of not that sexy, like you know, who wants to talk about having a compost and
1: yeah. buying second
2: hand? <laughs> and people kind of feel like you know, like oh, not you know, it's not a green thing. You might be buying something that's not even considered green. So um, yeah. yeah, there are a lot of a lot of perception things you have to work through. I
0: really find that composting is a real area that can really evolve but there's a little bugbear of mine at the moment and that's there's a lot of packaging now that is compostable which is a great initiative but the problem i have is most people don't have not that they don't want to it's just they don't have composting facilities and i know there are even where i live in auckland Uh, Within my suburbs, there are, you know, you can jump online and there are people that have compost bins that they'll share with within their own, you know, immediate sort of neighborhood. And that's great. But for the most part, people don't have composting facilities. So now I'll have, say, a courier bag will arrive and it's compostable. Okay, great. But I can't compost. And now I can't recycle it either because you can't recycle compostable packaging. So now that's ending up in the landfill.
2: Yeah, and if we, if we go back to the waste hierarchy as well, compostable packaging doesn't solve the problem but you still have to get you've got to get to the bottom of the waste hierarchy before that's a good idea right because you're still it's still a single-use product Mm. and so this is uh, where we move away from this conversation of being fixated on petroleum based plastics towards looking at the way that we use resources as a whole and to say to use anything once and then throw it away whether you're landfilling it or recycling it or using the soil as a disposal system, because let's be honest, that's what compostable plastics do, mm-hmm. um, is it's not tackling the root cause of the problem that we need to conserve our, our use of resources. So um, there is that extra conversation about the lack of infrastructure. But mm. you know, my concern is, well, if we increase the amount of compostable plastic packaging in our economy, you know, you're going to have councils pressured to set up a collection service and then set up this commercial re- um, composting facilities and all of that money and resource and logistics could be put into something like oh, reusable packaging. And systems. that just
0: can't work because just like with the recycling plastic, you know, they say if, if there's a product that's contaminated because you haven't rinsed it out or you've put the wrong item in a, in a recyclable bin you can't recycle all the contents i mean composting is an even bigger nightmare you know
1: <laughs> so yeah. when push comes to shove we really need to move away from our linear economy to a circular economy don't we like yeah. that's kind of what we need to do
2: that's right and we need to be we also need to be savvier um at calling out greenwash because i can tell you there's a lot of packaging companies and other dubious things like waste energy that are co-opting the language of zero waste and circular economy and saying you know our compostable packaging is circular because you can put it back in the ground and it will grow more things or whatever and that's not you know that's really I find that to be greenwashing because it's you're still it's still a perpetual uh, linear behavior of you take something from the earth make it into a thing use it once and throw it away and sure it's being composted maybe but it's yeah it's not addressing those higher outcomes and i'll go on a
0: complete tangent here because this is another bugbear of mine with single-use plastic too now you pay five cents whatever and you get a nice thicker plastic that's reusable when those plastic bags end up in the ocean whether it's single use compostable or even thicker it doesn't make a difference a piece of plastic in the ocean is not going to break down, regardless of whether it's compostable or not, single use or, or or reusable. It still causes the exact same problem. In fact, probably exacerbates the problem. So, like you say, this whole greenwashing concept, where all it does is just dampens, you know, the the I
1: guess the hype. It makes people bit. feel good about what yeah. they're doing, yeah. So they can continue on doing it, and not really have a look and address. What I mean, needs replacing to
0: replacing plastic straws with. Uh, different straws but you still don't need a straw <laughs> you know it's 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 that kind of concept or or yeah i mean anyway <laughs> we can go on and on with this it's um, yeah yeah the, the, it's it's all greenwashing at the end of the day that's you know at the end of the day what you're saying is the pop the general population is just focusing on the wrong and the easy bit you know we've changed a product so that like emma says you feel good about it that's easy that was that was just Way easier to roll out than actually cause a fundamental change in terms of how you operate, either as a consumer or as a business.
2: Yeah, and to be fair, like it's yeah, it's consumers. I think you know you're just responding to what's available on the market. So I, you know, my questions then come to yeah, we can all inform ourselves and boycott things, but at the same time, if we think that something's bad enough that we don't want it in our life where is the government like where, why are they missing an action? Why are they allowing this to continue? Like, so I get quite frustrated about this because, you know, business, you know, I just see capitalism as just this giant Pac-Man, right? And it's just like chomping away and, you know, if you point it in one direction, it'll chomp in that direction. If you point it in another direction, it'll chomp in that direction. And so government should be there to actually get the Pac-Man, turn it around and say, No, you're not gonna do that, you're gonna do this. Um but at the moment, you know, we our whole economy is set up to encourage the extraction of fossil fuels and single single use and linear economy, and so we do need to change some of those high level settings at the government level to disincentivise single use by levying single use, or disincentivising the linear economy by levying landfills and requiring um, producers to you know internalising those costs of their products onto them so that, you know, they're not getting a free ride uh, with councils paying to manage their waste and all this kind of stuff. So I think that there are some questions here about not only consumers sort of going along with things, but governments being missing in action.
1: Yeah, and this leads us perfectly into I was a recent. Yeah. She, she just created
2: her own segue. <laughs> nice segue. <laughs>
1: um, so, the New Zealand government announced its six priority products as they kind of move towards a more regulated product stewardship. Um, because, up until now, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but in New Zealand, industry responsibility for their products at the end of life has been voluntary with what they do with it rather than essential. So it's kind of giving business a free ride here. So could you talk to us a little bit about product stewardship and what that actually means?
2: Yeah, so product stewardship is basically about getting all of the different actors that are involved in the life cycle of a product from producers through to retailers, consumers, um, and so on, to take greater responsibility for managing or reducing the environmental harms that product will cause um including including waste and um well, I mean that's it basically in a nutshell and ideally uh, those product stewardship schemes you would create to make that happen are going to be mandatory so everybody has to participate and that's kind of the way that we deal with this product in our economy through this scheme approach okay so it's
0: mm-hmm. got a little bit deeper so yes now it's it's declared you know, a priority, and this is what needs to happen, but and and everybody needs to get involved. But who's accountable? Who's need, Who's actually driving this?
2: Yes, this is so interesting. So, um, maybe I'll, I'll do a little sort of how we got to where we are now. Um, mm-hmm. so Emma summarized quite well that we've had a sort of voluntary approach for quite a long time, and we might have yeah. had ad hoc, um, uh, producers taking responsibility but so in New Zealand we have this thing called the Waste Minimization Act which was passed in 2008 that gives the minister of the day the power to declare a particular product let's say tyres, a priority product when that product is declared a priority product then a product stewardship scheme for that product must be developed which will then be accredited and then the minister has the power to make it mandatory through regulations um, so This has never been done before. The minister uh, in August declared these six priority products. And so now the product stewardship schemes have to be developed. Now, because this has never been done before, it's all sort of everybody's sort of looking at each other. But the, the government's taken the approach pretty much that they're going to leave it to industry to sort it out And then industry will create the scheme and then we'll come back to government and government will look at it and say, yes, this meets our guidelines that we've put out or no, this doesn't meet the guidelines. You've got to tweak it here or there. And then we'll, you know, if it meets the guidelines, then it must be accredited. So this process is deeply problematic because product stewardship involves all people in the life cycle of the product and so we need all stakeholders at the table frankly i don't think it's appropriate that industry should be leading you know yes they're going to it's going to impact them the most probably but this is a scheme to regulate them and to internalize the costs of production and so you're kind of leaving the fox in charge of the hen house
0: <laughs> all i'm all i'm seeing is just increase in cost that's all i'm seeing you know, as, well, as, as an output from a consumer perspective at this rate?
2: Well, I, I, well, I would push back on that a little bit because mm. right now we're paying through the nose to manage these products in a highly inefficient way through councils being responsible for it. And so um, actually... I mean, even a poorly designed scheme, if it's applied in a mandatory sense to everyone, is probably still going to be cheaper for the public than the status quo mm-hmm. um, and will lead to better outcomes as well. But there's a really big difference between an average product stewardship scheme and an amazing product stewardship scheme. And um, we, I think it comes back to the waste hierarchy again, is that, Often what happens with product stewardship schemes, especially if you leave it up to industry, is it just becomes a glorified recycling scheme. Mm. Whereas really what you want to see with product stewardship is that it actually drives producers to redesign their products to be less wasteful in the first place. Uh, and that's where the, those incentives should be. So, yes, recycling is important, but um if that's all the product stewardship scheme achieves, I feel that we've just missed a humongous opportunity.
0: Okay, I'm um, probably going to put you on the spot here, but one of the products, so there's six products, plastic packaging, tires, electrical and electronic products, which is e-waste, agri-chemicals in their containers, refrigerants, and farm plastics. Tires. How do you change tires to be less wasteful? I mean, it's a tire. <laughs> it's a big round piece of rubber. You you drive the vehicle until the rubber's worn down to, you know, there's no tread left. And then the remaining rubber, you know. Yeah. I
2: yeah, know these yeah. concepts
0: of retreading tires. So that's using the existing, but I also know that they're not as safe, perhaps. Uh, but yeah, I mean, let's use tires as an example. How much can that change?
2: Yeah, and I think that's a a good question. And thank you for putting me on the spot with (laughs) (laughs) probably one of the trickier ones. Yeah, I think tires are probably a really good example of like even the world's worst product stewardship scheme would be better than what we have right now, which is, you know, a massive, massive problem in New Zealand. Mm. Um, And there are, you know, I'm not a tire manufacturer and I also often push back on this concept that Um, it's up to people who'd like to see a better world who don't produce the products to come up with the solutions like i do really think that there is that's part of producer responsibility that it's their product you know the onus is on them but i think there are really important things to consider with tires and one of them is that every single time they are used they shed micro filaments of plastic onto the roads that go straight into the stormwater systems into the ocean. And for me, a product stewardship scheme needs to address that. Um, Whether it's sort of a a warrant fitness kind of thing where you have, you know, like some tires shed more than others. So Mm. uh, some sort of transparency around that um, investment in innovating and alternative materials or really starting to regulate and transparency around what is going into that rubber that is you know some of those synthetic products because it's not just plastic you know you've got plastic with all these chemical additives that go into tires that make that those plastic filaments extremely toxic yeah so i think that you know it may not be that you achieve with product stewardship this magical solution where the tire disappears in a puff of perfect smoke at the end of its life but there are real gains that can be made in terms of well actually we need transparency around these things we need to have innovation we need to be putting money into that um and that could be achieved by a product stewardship scheme that set those outcomes but you know if there's no one at the stakeholder table who's raised that it's not going to be included in the scheme
0: yeah and I think if if our listeners are are, are um you know feeling sort of uh, appalled at the thought of shit I didn't realize you know how much you know, the the sort of small rubber I mean that's what rubber wear is you know or tire wearers it's it's yeah. rubber breaking down. Through a lot of constant wear and tear, and those particles end up on the road, which then end up down the stormwater networks and into the ocean. But let's not forget, bicycles do the same—not at the same rate—but bicycle tires do the same. Shoes do the same thing. Um, scooters, skateboards, anything that's got rubber on that—it's just perhaps not the same rate, but it's—it's it's, you know, it's uh, we're polluting in a lot more men- more ways than we realise.
2: Totally, and this is another area where the sharing economy becomes relevant as well. In that, Mm. you know, even little things where you think about the number of people in single in cars with just one person in them, um, that you've got all of those tires (laughs) versus a bus,
0: versus a bus or a train, or yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, and so that's you know that's the waste hierarchy as well. Like sometimes you may not, we may not be ready to fully prevent, but we could go into reduction mode. There are strategies that if we're really serious about reducing our impact on the environment, we have to be able to engage with those reduction concepts as well. That may not look like it. You know, having more people in one car, you might not think of that as a waste strategy. Mm. But in actual fact, um, it could be.
0: So you and she said, the framework was put in place back in 2008 and only now it's become – Mandatory is that? Yeah. Is, is that because Australia I read had a very similar scenario where in the 1990s the the frame a framework was put in for product stewardship and funding was 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 you know made available for for certain um, initiatives and there's some great initiatives come out but it also became a very stop start sort of yeah. approach um, and I think now Emma <laughs> I don't know I mean you 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 might know a little bit more being there but um, Only now I think that there's that impetus again to bring it forward and say, okay, actually, we now need to start getting a bit more serious about it. Um, But it becomes very political, doesn't it? I mean, you know, I'm going to take a punt here. You know, this was announced very recently. Local elections are coming up. You know, is this just a political thing? And then next year, does it get forgotten about again?
2: Well, the, the great thing about the fact that these products have been declared a priority product is that unless they get undeclared a priority product, which I think would be politically very unpalatable, mm-hmm. those product stewardship schemes have to be designed. So I think the present ones aren't aren't in danger of being reversed, or at least that would be very politically difficult to do, I think. Um, but there is a broader conversation around the level of ambition with the schemes uh, and future product stewardship schemes because you know like okay we declared six products but you know (laughs) there are many wasteful products in the world um so yeah there is a political problem and i mean i can i can only really speak for the new zealand context but you know the reality is that product stewardship is going to internalize the costs for producers, and at the moment they have a really sweet deal because all of the costs of their products are being paid for by the community and councils. And so, of course, they're going to be opposed to product stewardship, especially really ambitious ones. Uh, And so I think in New Zealand a really classic example is um, beverage container return schemes. I know you've got lots of them over in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Just the battle to get that considered in New Zealand has been so difficult because the beverage beverage industry doesn't support it. The packaging companies don't support it because it will make them responsible for their products, whereas right now they're not responsible. And so from that comes all of this obfuscation. You know, reports saying that it's going to be bad for curbside recycling. Um, then you know, industry put forward proxy schemes um, like public place recycling bins we don't need a container return scheme because we've got public place recycling bins and guess what it was funded with public money from the waste minimization fund in part Mm. so it's like wow um and so all of these delay tactics uh and putting out misinformation or misleading information that then politicians have to navigate the public has to navigate uh and it's just extraordinarily effective it's the merchants of doubt situation um so So, yeah, I think that's part of the issue, and that's also why I find it very difficult to be comfortable with industry being left alone to design the schemes, and I really would like to see the New Zealand government take a leadership role and oversee the design process and bring multiple stakeholders to the table, and I don't believe that there's any other organisation other than central government that really has the mandate to do that, and so I'd really, really like them not to... uh, not to take that mandate up, well, surely no. there'd
0: be more of an impetus now, seeing that um you know we've been so accustomed to shipping our waste overseas that you know now it's 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 becoming more of a of a of a known issue, you know tires piling up uh plastic um a lot of what we could con- uh recycle we've just been so accustomed to shipping overseas, so there's actually now a burden on within our own resources so you know, that that surely that's creating even more of an impetus to, to be able to deal with it locally.
2: Oh, no doubt. I mean I, I think a big factor in the sudden change in um, Government policy in this area is not just because our minister is a green minister, which I think is very easy for a lot of people to say, but I think it's also just the extraordinary increase in public awareness around waste as a result of um, the China national sword policy, the, the restrictions on those exports of plastic, um, and also just even documentaries like um, David Attenborough's Blue Planet plastic ocean, you know, people are really agitated around this, con- this um, conversation about plastics, and it's visible, The you know, the plastic pollution is increasingly visible. Mm. So I think that you're right, yeah, it has had an impact, but I I am still concerned, though, that, uh, okay, so we've identified the problem, but I don't think that as a collective we've fully identified the solution, and I don't think that we have the literacy at this point to really identify the greenwashing either. And so um, I think there's still a lot of work to be done there and making sure that when we, put the solutions in place that they are the right ones and that they're not going to cause people to then become disillusioned with product stewardship as well. You know, like if we put in place crappy schemes that don't really work, that have been sort of whittled down, mm. um, we run the risk of actually people losing faith in the concept of product stewardship as a whole.
0: Well, like recycling bins, you know, there's there's a lot of, whether it's myth or truth, that a lot of recycling we, we try and take personal care to separate to clean ends up at landfill.
2: Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, exactly.
0: So it has the trust gone as well. You know, yeah. is, is it worth the effort? Do, does it actually work? Do, do, do these recycling concepts work? You know, you go into a town and there's three different colored bins and, and yet half the time you still can't figure out where to put a piece of rubbish in. Um, it doesn't really work, does it? Like like you say, it just masks the problem and just delays delays the inevitable.
2: Well, I think that there are a number of issues with recycling and and you it's you can't apply a blanket statement because there's many different materials, and even within plastics, there's some plastics that are technically easier to recycle than others. but that's right yeah. one of the one of the massive issues we have is actually our collection methodologies are all wrong, and that's really where product stewardship comes in. like you know curbside recycling. I mean, I don't believe that that's the best system because you often have commingled recycling things so you know paper in with plastic and with glass and with metals and it's all messed up and then you know by the time you've separated it out it's inevitable there's going to be percentage of contamination mm-hmm. um, public place recycling is an absolute joke really because there's so much contamination in those bins it's really difficult Um so if you want to be able to do effective recycling a big part of it is is keeping all of those material streams clean and separate and so so it comes down to collections. and So product stewardship is good. And, and, you know, for example, if I take the example of container, beverage container return systems, because people are incentivized to bring their bottle back to get that deposit that's on it, um, they're bringing back clearly identifiable bottles they're all in clean individual streams it's very easy for it to be sorted and that produces really high quality recyclers which uh, can then be recycled so didn't they
0: initially install a pilot in dunedin i think and i think i saw something similar in queensland as well where the machine automatically identifies whether it's aluminium or or glass even and and you know it's it's able to it's all automated
2: yeah, so the Dunedin one's interesting. We can come back to that in a moment. But, yeah. but what you're talking about is reverse vending machines. Um, yes. And so reverse vending machines, they can be used in a container return system. They're very common all around the world, including in Australia. Uh, and, yeah, they're just a way of sorting in a convenient way in smaller spaces like retail spaces. They're really good. You know, you don't then need to go to a collection depot necessarily. Um, and yeah, they're, they're good. Uh, the one in Dunedin is just um, an industry sponsored uh, machine uh, that interestingly only collects plastic and cans, it doesn't collect glass. Uh, and they're fine, but I think the thing is that we want a beverage container return scheme. We yeah. don't want a random industry placed. or for people to stop
0: drinking sugary drinks i mean why not go to the root of the problem
2: (laughs) well that's yeah well because interestingly in that machine when you put the bottle in you get a discount off your next purchase of another drink which is not how how a container return scheme works so then
0: coca-cola and the likes of you know they'll definitely be behind these things because it's encouraging you know more sales (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah and I, and again it's just it's just this proxy feel good stuff. Well, mm. we don't need a container return scheme because we put a machine in at target university. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> Enough said. So, yeah. you know, so okay, so we've raised a lot of really interesting sort of, you know, concepts around stewardship and and ownership around, you know, being I guess being accountable, self-accountable for how much we choose to consume and what we do with it. Um And, you know, I know for myself that other than cardboard or paper waste, which goes in the recycling bin, the majority of my home rubbish is probably food related, which I'm pretty stoked with because it means I've made a huge effort to trying and reduce plastic waste because soft plastic I collect and I take to a soft recycling program Um, and the rest in terms of rubbish that goes to landfills. It's minimal, but I still feel I, I I just don't feel like I'm contributing. So how can people in general, having listened to this episode, gone onto your website, being inspired and say, right, I want to really make an effort to ultimately get to zero waste, but really minimize waste. What can we initially do?
2: Yeah, I think the first thing is to identify what's in your rubbish bin at the moment. If you're not dealing with if you've got food waste or organic waste in your rubbish bin, that's the place to start. So the average New Zealand household bin is 30 to 50% food waste, green waste. So that's important because when that goes to landfill, landfills are anaerobic, in anaerobic environments they break down and re- release methane, which is a potent greenhouse gas. So we we don't want food waste in landfill. So setting up a compost getting a worm farm going or a bakashi bin if you don't have a lot of space um, or looking for a a community compost local to you that you might be able to use there's a system called uh, sharewaste.org.nz yep that's a great system as well so that's the biggest thing that anybody can do to reduce their waste footprint and also climate change impact then after that We actually really recommend that people get into a habit of um, reuse instead of single use. So just being prepared when you go out and about have a, water bottle with you, have a reusable cup with you, have a container with you, some cutlery, um, you can keep it in your car if you drive, just so that if you do want to get food on the go, uh, you can avoid all of those single use items because they, are, they do make up a volume in the waste stream and they're basically not recyclable and they're also light so they quite easily escape into the environment and become pollution. And then uh, if people are feeling up to it, tackling the grocery shop Um, we really encourage people to be creative and to think beyond supermarkets Um, liam and i through the rubbish trip we've produced regional zero waste shopping guides for the whole of new zealand so that people can find where they can get unpackaged groceries in their local area bring their own containers and fill up and that eliminates a whole heap of soft plastics from the get-go and it also uh Can connect you more to small businesses rather than, you know, big, big chains uh, and gets you into sort of routines of going to markets and that kind of thing. So those are probably the places I'd start. And also, as I mentioned before, making a conscious effort not to buy new things unless you really need them. So especially clothing and electric. Those are New Zealand's fastest growing waste streams. If you can get those things secondhand, that's a really big thing um, you can
1: do. Brilliant. So what's on the horizon for the New Zealand Product Stewardship Council as well as the rubbish trip?
2: Yeah, so the New Zealand Product Stewardship Council, we're trucking along. We um, don't have any um, income. (laughs) So uh, we do everything off the smell of an oily rag. And so we're trying to focus you know, really focus on trying to get the broader conversation out there about the value of product stewardship for communities generally and trying to ensure uh, that there is an independent community voice around those design tables at the moment for product stewardship. So that's probably our focus at the moment. And then with the rubbish trip, we're sort of working out how we fit in the world now that we're not on a trip anymore. We're not traveling. But we are going to continue doing presentations about Uh, Zero waste living wherever we can, and we're continuing to produce resources. We keep our regional zero waste shopping guides up to date. We um, often produce resources to help people submit on government proposals. There's one out at the moment on uh, phasing out a whole bunch of single use plastics and hard to recycle plastics. So we produce resources to help people engage in the democratic process. Uh, And we're also yeah, working with a group called Takeaway Throwaways to try and get a culture of reuse going in New Zealand. So those are probably the focuses for the
1: time being. So when do you have time to sleep? <laughs>
2: oh, I
0: was going to say, wow. <laughs>
1: um,
2: yeah, I'm probably not as many hours as I probably <laughs> should. <laughs> but I'm really, really fortunate that i am able to a live a life that aligns with my values which is so important to me and to do work that i just you know like i just love this work and i wouldn't want to be doing anything else um and it's often not really work really you know it's it's just you know hanging out with people who share the same values and want to see the same things happen and and so much of my time is spent, you know, doing wonderful things like cooking yum meals from scratch and and talking with people about zero waste. So, so yeah, I think I, I'm feeling pretty good about my life, my work life balance. <laughs> any any
0: any plans on taking the roadshow across the ditch, Emma? I think uh, you know they could, we they need could, it. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Oh well, there's some great um, zero waste extraordinaires over in, in Australia. Um, we're pretty inspired by a lot of people over there. We don't fly, so I think that causes some issues with getting mm. over to the over the, over the ditch.
0: Well, Dr. Mike um, Joy's got a boat, so maybe. Yeah, <laughs> but
2: maybe that will be that will we'll do a Greta Thunberg across the ditch. But <laughs> no, um, there look out for people like um, the Rogue Ginger, pretty awesome, and our friend sarah who runs a, a trans tasman waste related uh, podcast called sarah um they're called wasted uh and so there yeah there are lots of people and you may know about the formidable vegetable the amazing band based in australia who sing about permaculture and they're quite zero wastey as well so yeah you've got you've got a good good bunch over there oh, amazing
0: <laughs> amazing um, Hannah your your passion and your energy is is honestly it's inspiring and um, you know what you and Liam have achieved so far is 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 incredible it's um, you know what a lot of people think is difficult it's too hard um, and and oh, I won't contribute to my style of living well you you know your testament to the fact that you can live a really a uh, uh, fully accomplished and, and enjoyable life and, and a meaningful life, knowing that you're contributing to to a better place around around yourself and around people that you 're with so thank you so so much for coming onto the show, sharing so much you know valuable information, insight and a lot of tips on how to live waste free so thank you so much.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you to both of you for running this podcast and, and, and providing a platform to have these kinds of conversations. There's so many important conversations to have and it's so exciting to be, to be a part of it. Um, so thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks, Hannah.
0: Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends.